1: Hello everyone and welcome to Slash Home Daily for Friday, May 8th, 2020. On today's episode, we're gonna discuss what we've been doing at the water cooler. This is Slash Home editor in chief Peter Sorreta, and joining me to this podcast, the Slash Home Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Senior writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Squatron Bui.
2: Hey everyone.
1: And Christy Vendelista. Hello. So Brad is off today. I promise he will return next week. But we're going to do this without him. I think we can pull it off. Uh, let's start first what, with what we've been doing, which is a section that almost, is, since this pandemic has almost fallen off this podcast, because like no one is doing anything. And even the one entry we have here is something that was done many months ago. <laughs> so, H.D., w- w- what did you do?
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, this is something I did almost a year ago, but uh, you're seeing it just now because Internet and all those things, but I shot a video with Ryan Bergara and Shay Made from um BuzzGren Salt that they've launched their own channel called The Watcher. And um, they have a series of videos on the Watcher channel on YouTube, one of which is called Top Five Beatdown, in which they argue and have t- hot takes about various um, topics that they rank from one to five. And uh, I was invited on to talk about. Best Pixar movies. You can watch the video um, on YouTube. We'll link it in the show notes, I'm sure. Um, And I'm sure many of you will be angry at my picks as well, because no one has everyone, you know, has their favorite Pixar movies. My opinion. I have my opinions. My opinions are right. So (laughs) it's it's a fun video, and you'll get to see a lot of me just laughing awkwardly and pulling a lot of fun faces that I'm sure will be uh, circulated throughout the internet.
1: I think everybody's going to agree completely with not only the top five films that you picked, but also the rankings. H oh, D.
2: thank you. Yeah, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> Why was this thing held for like almost a year? Like, what is what is going on here?
2: Oh, I don't know. I mean, it was um, when I filmed it, they were still uh, readying the launch of Watcher, and they were still like under BuzzFeed. I think they still do uh, work for BuzzFeed as well. So I think they were just kind of piling up their. Um, their episodes and waiting to launch them at various times i don't know why mine took so long because they told me that it would be um dropped in november which this is a long (laughs) way from november now um but yeah it's uh you know maybe um people just wanted it's it's good quarantine watching if you guys want to watch some pixar movies with us and you know get angry about it
1: i wish i could bank content for that long that that is insane okay Let's move on to what we've been reading. Ben, what have you been reading this week?
0: So I uh, am almost done. I have like, I don't know, 20 pages or something left with uh, volume one of Wild Cards, which is a, I guess, the first of what looks to be a 27 book series. I didn't realize that this, it also encompasses like comic books and graphic novels and and role playing games. I didn't realize that this was quite such a a drastic, uh, you know, huge, expansive franchise when I started. I don't know if I would have really started this uh, if I if I knew ahead of time. But uh, Wild Cards is this um, series of science fiction and superhero. Uh, shared universe anthologies, and it's edited by George R. R. Martin, who wrote uh, the the Game of Thrones books. And um, I think Hulu is developing this into a TV series, and when I, I wrote up the news about that for SlashFilm.com a while ago, I, I thought the premise sounded really interesting. So I ordered the first book, and I just am, am very close to finishing it now. The premise is... The books are set during this alternate history right after World War II where there is a virus that uh, – it's an alien virus, actually, that that sort of, like, lands on the planet and infects people, and it rewi- rewrites their DNA and mutates the survivors. Like, a lot of people die, but those who survive are mutated, and they fall into two camps. The Jokers, which are people who get um, – Really horrible physical conditions where, um, you know, their faces are melted off or they they are like uh, sort of outcasts and rejects of society because they look so hideous because of you know what's happened to them because of this virus. Or there's this other other category called aces, which is why wild cards is the name of the thing. You're either a joker or an ace. And the aces are basically superheroes like they gain the power to fly or have super strength or read people's minds or turn invisible or, you know, any number of different things. So it's basically George R. R. Martin. He, he writes a couple of the anthology shorts in here as well. Um, and a bunch of his friends and, and sort of colleagues and contemporaries just doing their take on superhero uh, like sci-fi stories. Um, and it's really interesting because it. it blends in with real life events it's sort of like the whole thing is sort of about the intersection of superheroes and politics it reminded me of watchmen in that way like one of the short stories is about uh, fascism and and sort serves as this sort of like warning or unfortunate prophecy about what happens when too much power is consolidated in one area of society and one story will like um almost offhandedly mention a relationship between two minor characters. And then another writer will pick up that reference and like bloom it out into its own full love story in, in great detail. So it's interesting the way that the story sort of like crisscross as the, the book goes through these different um, anthology pieces. Um, I thought I'm, – I'm very impressed with it so far. It's, it's really heartbreaking and thoughtful stuff. There's a section where Joseph McCarthy shows up and he follows up his communist witch hunt with – by like calling the aces to testify and set up, sets up a federal registration system for the heroes, which sounds very, very familiar for anybody who read the the civil war stretch in in Marvel comics. So
1: wait, which um, one came first, this or civil war?
0: Well, yeah, this has been going on since the 1980s, like the mid uh, 1986 is when uh, the first one was written. I think it was published in 87 and it's still going on. They're still publishing stories in this. So I think that civil war, uh comic was probably what like a decade ago or something like that and and this this collection of stories volume one that i'm reading um is a lot of the earlier stories from the the mid 80s so uh yeah it's wild cards volume one edited by george r R.
3: martin if you're if you're uh interested in checking that out ben (laughs) are you aware of the origin story of this book series i'm not no uh, George R. R. Martin ran a years-long uh, RPG campaign with a bunch of writer friends, and they fell in love with their characters and their world so much, they decided to make these stories about them. So all these <laughs> stories are based on their characters from this RPG, and then other people started saying, hey, can we contribute, and it built out from there. Wow, that's really cool. That sounds like something that you would be involved in, Jacob. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really cool story. Like when the famously Neil Gaiman pitched the Sandman as a character in Wild Cards and George R. Martin said I don't know who you are kid so he said fine and went and wrote Sandman as a comic. (laughs) Wow that's awesome
2: That's awesome oh my god
1: Didn't something similar happen with that uh, that space TV show that was on Sci-Fi and is now on Amazon uh, The Expanse
3: I, I think so. I, I don't, I don't want to speak out of turn. Yeah. I, I believe th- those... it started
1: as an RPG that they were playing, and then they. Yeah. yeah,
3: I know those guys are big RPG fans. The guys who write those books together under one pen name, uh, and there's now an Expanse RPG. So it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
1: So how many more volumes are there?
3: Uh, a
0: lot. There. Are, yeah, I think there are 28 books so far, and then there's also like all the comics and graphic novels and all the other wow. sort of ancillary materials. So I, I'm not sure how far I'm going to go into this, but. Uh, I, I wanted to at least have the base of knowledge for if and when that Hulu series actually comes to fruition, so I could sort of understand it and and maybe add enhance some of our you know, the writing and coverage and stuff that we do on the site when that comes around. And it just sounded interesting to me on a personal level, too. so it's 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 nice when that uh, that sort of um both things happen at once
1: see i I didn't even know anything about this. This is amazing to me that it's something this big that I. Had only vaguely heard of. But, uh, okay, let's jump into what we've been watching. I will start things off with uh, something that HT talked about last week. I think it was last week. HT, was it last week that you mentioned the half of it?
2: Yeah, it was last week.
1: Yeah, this is new on Netflix. It is a coming-of-age comedy drama. It comes from writer-director Alice Wu. Well, I want to say it's like an up-and-comer that we need to watch, but in my research, I learned that she's actually 10 years older than me, and is... <laughs> I wouldn't consider an up-and-comer. Uh, she actually made a film in, in 2005. She quit her job at uh, Microsoft and made this film in 2005 called Saving Face. Has anybody seen Saving Saving Face?
2: I haven't, but I did do an interview with Alice we and she talked about uh, directing this film and then leaving Hollywood for about 10 years and the half of it, writing that movie and bringing it and developing it is what brought her back to Hollywood.
1: Well, I totally want to go back and see Saving Face, uh, a big career ahead of her, for sure. I'm a big fan of coming-of-age dramas, as I said. This is kind of, I've been pitching it to people as Love, Simon meets Roxanne. Which, yes, I know is, like, uh, based on something else, too. But uh, I think that's probably the best way of kind of describing it. it uh, sm- it's smart. It's charming. It's uh, – I don't know. It it, it, it does some – like, it she it takes some bold strokes to elevate this above other films of, like, this, you know, high school coming-of-age drama. It um, – there's this brilliant shot that I – I don't know. I, I just think like it, it's on the surface, yes, it's it, it's a coming of age high school drama, but just how Alice treats everything. Like there's this one shot where uh, there's these t- two people in a diner having a conversation, and there's a uh, the main character is outside the diner in her car, kind of texting both people in the diner, trying to like create this conversation between them. She she's uh, providing she's trying to help these two hook up and just the way it's shot is just so so brilliant uh ben you also saw us what what did you think of the half of it
0: i did like that moment that you mentioned i like the the framing especially where uh the camera sort of pans off to one side and you can see the text that that character is sending i thought that was really well done um overall i i have to say that i walked away a little disappointed from this one i um i think the the Skeleton is really really promising. Like the the bones of the story, um, on paper everything looks great. I feel like the execution was a little lacking for me. Um, part of it has to do with the casting. I really did not care for the main uh, male lead. I, I just didn't. <laughs> I, I didn't find him to be uh, charming or interesting in the way that. Uh, a lot of these other Netflix rom-com male leads have been to me. Um, this character just seems uh, maybe a little bit too dumb for his own good and for or for the what? movie's own good. Isn't uh, that what he's
1: supposed to be?
0: Sure, but I, I think there's a there's a a line, and this went like too dumb to the point where like <laughs> I I am no longer capable of like engaging and and. Uh, I don't know, like pulling for this character in a meaningful way. Um, so I don't know the the movie sort of kept me at at arm's length by um, the execution of it. Well, I think the, the premise is really, really well done. I think there's yeah, just some of the dialogue and stuff. I, I was not a, a huge fan of, but I know that um, this is a, you know, a big movie for a lot of people. And um, I, I yeah, I, I feel like the jerk who's like, oh, this thing that everybody loves. I didn't really care for it, but that's that's how it shook out this time.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know. H.C. and me, we're both on the same page on this one. And we, we say go yeah. stream it on Netflix right now, right? For sure. <laughs> okay. What What else have we been watching? H.C., uh, what, what have you been watching this week?
2: Well, I started watching uh, Never Have I Ever after you recommended it last week. Um, it's a show that I was planning to watch because I'm actually a fan of Mindy Kaling, despite uh, some of the ups and downs of her writing. Um, and I just was really interested in seeing this show. And um, I binged it entirely and finished it within like two days. I loved, loved Never Have I Ever. Um, I feel like it was Mindy Kaling like condensing all of her strengths with rom-com writing, with with a cringe comedy and secondhand embarrassment and writing these really loud, bombastic characters and putting all those strengths into a uh, surprisingly moving uh, teen rom-com show that actually becomes uh, a, an examination of grief. Um, I was, As I was watching it, it occurred to me that this is basically the... Teen version of Fleabag, in the way that it kind of takes this sort of unlikable character and takes takes you through all these the series of bad decisions that she makes and how it pushes people apart from her, but it's really just her not really being able to deal with um, her grief and her own sort of issues with that. So um, it's. T- follows Debbie, who is like a character loosely inspired by Mindy Kaling and her own childhood growing up in suburban Massachusetts. Um, And she is a, I think is a sophomore in high school who um, had just lost her dad uh, to a heart attack he died during a um, her school concert and it um, affected her so much that she actually uh, was paralyzed uh, from the waist down for a good six months um, or was it three months I think it was three months and um, after after she sort of recovers uh she's still not really able to move on and process uh the grief from losing her father and she kind of just dives into trying to uh change her image as the nerdy girl and uh get with the popular boy Paxton Hall Yoshida yes anyways i really really enjoyed this um and i say this as a fan of uh the mindy project which is a show that again like had its real ups and downs but it kind of Uh, I could see it kind of creating sort of a template for Never Have I Ever and I feel like Never Have I Ever really improved upon that and what Mindy Kaling has been uh, good at writing before which is really good uh, rom-com tropes done in a way that's really sincere and funny and enjoyable to watch despite you knowing how cheesy and cliched it is. And giving it sort of like a fun modern twist uh, as well as like touching on topics that she hasn't really touched on before, like grief and uh, family dynamics and those kind of fractured immigrant um, family dynamics as well, which I I really enjoyed. So um, I just, yeah, I really, I like the show a lot and I, you know, it's, it's nothing groundbreaking by any means, but um, I just I just really feel happy, I guess, that like Mindy Kaling has found a show that has like been able to get all of her best talents and put that into it and create like this really fun, really um, almost like addicting romantic comedy with uh, some you know wonderful themes of of grief and and loss so i yeah i really like never have i ever i cried twice so <laughs> that's a that might be the show but it also might be me quarantining by myself and like not having people to talk to and just like my emotions were amplified so no i'm fine but i really like <laughs> never have i ever
1: ben you also saw this
0: i watched just the first episode uh, right after i watched the half of it and uh and i are definitely on the same page with this one i i um I really, really loved the first episode. My wife and I, but we watched both of these back to back and we're like, wow, what a, a great palate cleanser because they're both sort of like, you know, teen rom-com, like in that, in that world a little bit. And I just found the writing and the, the jokes and, uh, the characters to be so much more, um, clever and engaging and, and just like more my tempo than, uh, than I did for the half of it. Um, and I, I really agree with almost every word that HG said there, especially like the, um, her reading on Mindy Kaling as a, as a writer and performer and like where her, um, her strengths and, and weaknesses are. Uh, I also watched all, all maybe I've maybe I didn't finish the Mindy project. I might only have like a few episodes of that left, but I, I think we're definitely on the same page there too. And and just from this first episode, I'm so happy that this is like the perfect distillation of, of Mindy's voice as a writer. And I think, um, you know, it, it seems like I, I have a lot to look forward to with the rest of the show. So I'm definitely uh, eager to finish work today and try to binge through the rest
1: <laughs> of the season. Um, I haven't been watching that much this week. I did watch the season finale of Westworld on HBO and I will say I I I think it was good. I don't think it was great. It it didn't uh you know the the last few episodes were a little shaky. This one uh, I think uh <laughs> it there was a lot going on and I really am interested on I think I'm more compelled and interested in where this sends us into next season and what that's going to be. And I know uh, Chris and I talked about this previously on the podcast, and I think he's dead on in uh, this could be going into other sci-fi territory. And th- that that to me is very exciting because it seems like, you know, this season, a lot of people were calling it a soft reboot. And I feel like next season is going to be this hard reboot that's, uh has a lot of potential. So uh, I I'm 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 still excited for Westworld. Uh and not as much as I was in season 1, but I think season 3 altogether was uh a little bit better than season 2. I I I think they uh maybe went I, I I've said this before in the podcast, but I think they went took the criticism that season 2 was too convoluted and complicated to heart too much and season 3 was a little bit too straightforward so i hope it's they can find a better balance in season four um but uh yeah i'm still in i'm excited to see whenever they end up making season four where that's going to end up going the other thing i've been watching this week is i watched the series finale of the clone wars this is the star wars animated tv show from dave filoni it's on disney plus and guys the last four episodes of this series are as good as i don't know it's at, at least as good as the prequel movies if not better than most of the prequels it, it, it is cinematic storytelling in the star wars universe and uh at, at a level that uh not only expands but enhances uh story beats that have happened before it's it's you know it's I know some of you on this podcast have had problems with how, like, you know, Mandalorian expands this world. This does it in ways that are – is is very interesting. And uh, I wish there was a way – because, you know, we're, like, what, seven seasons into the Clone Wars. I wish there was a way that, like, I could have Jacob, you watch this and enjoy it. But I, I there's so many seasons that predate this that uh, there's so much knowledge that I think is required. I wish there was, like, a template of, like – here are the, you know, eight episodes you need to watch before watching the, the, this final conclusion because, uh, you know, I cried. There's uh, they brought they brought back uh, Ray Park to motion capture. Uh, Darth Maul, Darth Maul is in this. Um, and he uh finally gets his due as a character, not just as a like you know cool looking, uh, you know. Sith that you know fights with the lightsaber. Like I, feel, I feel like the series has really given him his due. Uh, Ahsoka, just I don't know. I, I really like Clone Wars. I, I will say that I'm not as in love with Clone Wars as a whole as most Star Wars fans are. There are a lot of, and I know this is a dirty phrase, but filler episodes. And I don't mean that in that filler episodes. Uh, in that they don't progress canon or anything like that in any interesting way i mean filler episodes that they just feel like they don't progress the story they just feel like you could skip over these episodes and still watch the other episodes around it and it would feel like you miss no beats of uh the development of these characters and the storyline as a whole and i i feel like there's too many of those uh i i know that some people have lists online of like you know what are the essential clone wars episodes to watch and uh i've never watched it in that order but uh it, when clone wars is at its best it is some of the best of star wars so i can't recommend it more uh if if you have a chance watch the final four episodes it, it plays as a long mo- animated movie and uh it, it is pretty great uh jacob what have you been watching
3: I watched a movie that just hit Shudder called uh, Blood Quantum. And this played at Toronto International Film Festival last year. Uh, Meredith Borders reviewed it for us. And so it's been, been on my radar for a few months, uh, and it's just now streaming on Shudder. And this is a really interesting movie. It's a little sloppy, a little rough around the edges, but it's such a big swing for a low-budget horror film that I, I have to recommend it to people who are looking for something unique. And it's, it's set in 1985. to a period piece, but alternate history, uh, where a zombie outbreak uh, destroys the world, and it's set on a uh, uh, on a reservation called Red Crow uh, full of uh, you know Indigenous people, and it turns out that Indigenous people are immune to the zombie virus. They can get bit, and they as long as they don't get their throat torn out, they survive. So the movie is essentially about you know the sheriff of the reservation uh, played by Michael Gray Eyes, who's like one Hollywood's go-to Native American actors, uh, and his people as they attempt to like survive the apocalypse, uh, knowing that they can't in, uh, get the zombie virus, and it's a Really uh, gory, violent, uh, intense movie. Uh, lots of unique ways to kill zombies, but it's really the um, cultural expo- exploration uh, of this reservation and its people that makes it interesting. And the fact that it, uh, without going too deep into the plot, um, ultimately it's about like all the white people start rushing this reservation because it has protectors who can adequately protect people because they they can't you know get the virus, and about how the cultural divide between the indigenous population and all the uh, Caucasian <laughs> white people ends up uh, leading to all this kind of turmoil. Uh, this is such an I mean, I don't want to say much more because it's such a interesting thing. Uh, Chris, you were at TIFF last year. Did you catch this?
4: I have not. And I, I have heard good things about it. And I think I, I have it in my shutter queue. I just have not gotten around to watching it
3: yet. Uh, yeah, and, and the, the uh, cast is almost entirely uh, indigenous actors, which is hit and miss sometimes. Like the uh, M- Michael Gray Eyes, who's looking at INDB and just he's been in everything. Um, he, He's like a, but it's the first time I've seen him like in a heroic, you know, leading role and he's terrific. And there are a lot of other, you know, recognizable uh, actors as well. But there are some newcomers who are good and some who aren't so good. You clearly, clearly they went out of their way to find indigenous actors, which is great, uh, but the results can be a little mixed. Uh, but in terms of like horror that's really swinging for the fences, uh, Blood Quantum, which is a Shutter exclusive, so you need to be a member there. Uh, it really is something cool, and that's uh, that's worth uh, seeking out. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum, a big, glossy Hollywood movie that nobody saw earlier this year, uh, Underwater, uh, Kristen Stewart in an underwater uh, research station. Bad stuff happens, creatures are running amok, uh, 94 minutes long, no fat on it. Uh, this movie bombed really bad at the box office. I think it's the last film released under the 20th Century Fox banner, before it became 20th century pictures. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure. So it has that weird distinction. I really like this. Uh, It is clearly leaning on a lot of familiar tropes. It's alien underwater in a lot of ways, but the creature designs are terrific. Kristen Stewart has a badass haircut. Uh, She is surrounded by uh, some really interesting character actors and also T.J. Miller, so take from that what you will. Uh, But I really enjoyed this. It has no ambitions above being just a 94 minute long creature feature it's just clever enough uh just scary enough just gooey enough to really get the job done did anybody else catch underwater it was it was blinking and, and you it in theaters
4: uh, i saw it i, I reviewed it for the site actually and i uh i, I love this movie uh, It's it's a lot of fun and what i really like about it is there's literally no first act like it just kicks into gear like literally like the first scene something goes like terribly wrong and then it never lets up from there. And I wish more movies would do that. Just like jump right into it, not waste time with boring, (laughs) useless (laughs) crap. So I I really like this. And um, yeah, I I dug it a lot. It's got some great like Lovecraftian tones in it, which is always nice to see in, in a Hollywood movie. And yeah, it's a shame this, this did not do well, especially like, I feel like if this had gone like straight to netflix or something maybe it would have generated more buzz i don't know it's just but it came out in like january or whatever and that's like the dumping ground but it, it deserved
3: better than it got yeah and this is i get this for 5.99 on amazon as a rental and if you, have, if, you <clears throat> if you do, do that on amazon you can also watch lighthouse which is streaming there and do a uh, uh Kristen stewart um uh robert pattinson aquatic mayhem double feature <laughs> which i highly recommend uh uh, for obvious reasons. But anyway, also for uh, rental on your usual places, I got it for five nine nine on Amazon. Bloodshot, uh, which has a distinction of currently being, I believe, the last movie released in theaters before they were shut down. And uh, oh boy, um, I'm actually a big fan of Valiant Comics, especially the modern ones where Bloodshot, uh, who's a 90s superhero, is getting this really uh, tragic, uh, complex makeover, or he's become a stand-in for how uh, the military abuses soldiers and how men become tools of, of government. And the, the movie tries to do that at times, uh, and it's ultimately pretty half-baked. The script has a, is built around a really interesting core idea, which is essentially Memento of Superheroes, uh, which you see the trailer, it's kind of spoiled, but I don't want to say more just in case. I think there's something there. Uh, there's something there about um, this character who is a war veteran who wakes up without memory and is told uh, he's, he died he died in, in the line of duty. He's been brought back to life with nanobots and, uh, and about how he starts essentially being used uh, for nefarious purposes uh, and has to rebel against that. I think there's a cool concept there and the way it's structured actually is genuinely interesting. The halfway point in the movie has a big reveal that's given away in the trailers that I think is genuinely fun to see and really rewrites the movie you think you're seeing. But it doesn't change the fact that the story is full of bad jokes, uh, really weak character development. Lamorne Morris, who I love, a new girl is doing a Cockney accent here, is like the wacky sidekick, comic relief, and he's really bad. It's like shades of Don Cheadle and Ocean's Eleven bad. And ultimately, though, the the real failure of the movie is Vin Diesel as, as the lead. Uh, he is clearly clearly doesn't care here, or he's playing Dominic Toretto again. He's not doing anything that makes his character interesting or relatable or broken. I mean, I was was imagining, because I just watched Beyond Skyline, I was imagining Frank Grillo in this part, an actor who looks weary, who looks tired, who has no shame about playing somebody who's sad, and who uh, has weakness inside of him. Whereas Vin Diesel's constant posturing, constant tough guy attitude, tears this down in a way that, like, I just think of the Marvel movies, where the Marvel movies, are, are so interested in the weaknesses of the hero and how they overcome those weaknesses, whereas Vin Diesel is tough guy from the start, tough guy at the end, and there's just no change there. Does anybody else here see Bloodshot? Am I weird for picking on Vin Diesel, of all people?
4: I saw it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, I also reviewed this for the site. I did not care for it. Um, it. It was just too serious. Even with, like, the jokes in it, it's, like, it takes its premise way too seriously, and, like, there's, like, zero fun to be had in this movie at all like they should have like i don't know had fun with this premise it's just it feels very much like a late 90s early 2000s action movie it's like daredevil basically the ben affleck daredevil that's what this movie feels like to me but even that movie has like jokes in it whereas this is just vin diesel being way too serious and I just, I just don't care. I, I, he doesn't have the range for stuff like this. He, you know, he should just stick to Fast and the Furious at this point. And Guardians of the Galaxy, where he only
3: has to say one line over and over again. Oh, but Chris, what about the comic relief of Lamorne Morris with a Cockney accent? And yelling oh, God.
4: A lot? Just so bad. Like, why? Why did he make that? Just... I didn't read the comic. So is that... I don't know. Maybe that character is British in the comic. If he exists in the comic, I don't know. But why make him do that accent i just don't i don't get it it's a bad movie bloodshot
3: yeah. <laughs> I, I, was, I was looking through our archives and this is going to be at one point directed by the john wick team of chad Zalesky and david leach and uh okay. I, i'm imagining a better script for those guys directing but anyway moving on uh tuning my uh we through the 30 for 30 archives and espn plus uh chasing tyson uh, sort of a spiritual sequel but not really to, to talk about last week uh, 42 to one this is about the uh, relationship between Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield, uh, most famous because Mike Tyson bit off a chunk of Evander Holyfield's ear in a fight in 1997. And if you only know that part of the story, which I did going in, this is actually a really good argument for why Evander Holyfield was forgotten and overshadowed, despite being one of the most uh, famous, not famous, uh, successful boxers of all time from like a winning championship point of view. And like I said, somebody who doesn't really watch boxing at all in real life, but loves a good boxing story, um, this is a really solid doc. And you realize that Vander uh deserves more deserves to be known more than the guy who had his ear bitten by Mike Tyson. So that's streaming on ESPN+. Uh, double feature, my wife and I did on, H- on HBO Now, streaming both there. Mr. and Mrs. Smith and True Lies, both relationship comedies uh, built around espionage and spies. Uh, they're both really fun. Uh, I know True Lies, we've talked about this on the show before. Uh, it's aged interestingly in its depiction of uh middle eastern characters uh but otherwise i really think it's uh despite being occasionally retrograde it's a really fun combination of rom-com and uh james cameron blockbuster i enjoy it a lot so waiting for the 4k disc mr cameron bring it on uh mr mr smith i know uh at times release i feel like it's overshadowed by brad pitt angelina jolie making all the tabloid headlines but The movie stuff's fun and doug lyman you know uh he occasionally knocks down the park i think born identity this and edge of tomorrow make him like an all-timer for me even though you know he also made jumper well, who can forget <laughs> jumper uh yeah makes for a fun double feature uh anyone want to say any words about mr. mr smith and true lies while we're on these two movies i liked both of them
0: i have not rewatched either in a long time but yeah i just remembering back to true lies um I think uh what is his name Grant Hesloff, is uh who's George Clooney's production partner plays one of the um one of the like Arab soldiers who is part of the the evil army in True Lies which is like a weird piece of trivia but
3: uh... actually it's hard to correct you he plays the one good Arab who's on oh, okay. Schwarzenegger's side. All right good. Uh, yeah. So yeah he plays the, the token hey we're not racist character. Okay all right so yeah it's been too long since I've seen yeah. that movie evidently. <laughs>
1: Okay then, Chris, what
4: have you been watching? Uh, I watched all of Dead to Me season two. That just dropped on Netflix today, I believe, but I had screeners of it a few weeks ago. So my wife and I burned through it uh, over a weekend. And if if you have yet to start watching this show on Netflix, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's only a ha- the episodes are only a half hour long, which is always great because you can just you know blow through them. Um, but it's it's just a really compelling show because literally every episode ends with like a shocking cliffhanger and it's not done in like a cheap way where it's like, oh, all right, they're going to, you know, chicken out of this in the next episode. Like, the, you know, there is a payoff to every cliffhanger, but it, it just hooks you because every episode, just the, the minute it ends, you're just shocked and you're, you're, you immediately want to jump into the next one. And, Um, The show is about uh, two women who uh, could become uh, unlikely friends. I don't want to say too much because the power of the show is the less you know about it, the better it is. But uh, Christina Applegate um, plays this woman whose husband was recently killed in a hit and run. And she goes to this grief counseling group and she meets uh, this other woman played by Linda Carlini and they become friends. And then as the series progresses, uh, you learn that they both, both these women have a lot of secrets that they're keeping and the secrets slowly start trickling out. And uh, season one ended with a big shocking moment and season two picks up right from there and, and runs with it. And I think I liked season two even more just because uh, the the two leads really know their characters and by now in this second season and there's they're both doing really great work because they have to do a lot of big emotional scenes especially this season where things get really uh bad and dangerous for both of them and and they're they're both like losing their minds in every episode and it it can't be like an easy gig for either of these actresses because literally every episode has them breaking down into hysterics but they're both so good at it and uh i also want to add this is a funny show i know i'm making it sound like this like incredibly stressful nightmare show but it's it's very darkly comedic so dead to me season two it's it's the perfect weekend binge because you can just you'll you'll finish it in like two days honestly uh and i also decided to just on a whim rewatch the first pirates of the caribbean film which i haven't seen in a very very long time and i, I feel like this movie uh, has been sort of tainted a bit by all of the sequels which i honestly think all of them are just really like the, bad the second one all- isn't bad no it is peter
1: all- it- it's not <laughs> as great but it's not bad
4: no, I don't like any of the sequels, but this first one—not good. Yeah, thank you, H. D. <laughs> but the first one really holds up. It's 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 a lot of fun. It's it's got that same sort of like swashbuckling adventure that the the Mask of Zorro has, and a lot of movies don't have anymore. And man, you know, I know why Disney turned us into a franchise because of the money, and they made tons of money. But I really wish this had just been like the only entry in this series, and just had been like. A cool little one-off movie because I don't know, man, those sequels, they just get progressively worse and they just, they ruin everything that made that first movie so much fun. Like, the first movie, you know, just leans into all the fantasy and Johnny Depp, while he, you know, steals the scenes, he's not, like, the main focus of, of the story. You know, everything that works in the first film, they they subsequently destroy in the sequels where they start explaining all the fantasy stuff and they make you know jack sparrow the the main guy because everyone loves johnny depp's performance and it just kind of sours what made that first one
1: so good but the first one still good
4: on i think it's on disney plus that's where i watched it it's so
3: good it's so so good
1: yeah that first movie is amazing i will say this i i do think that this was prime for a franchise i think the problem here is they went into production on two and three without having like a full script (laughs) And they were like building sets, and then like writing scenes around like the sets that they were building. It was kind of a was that around the writer strike? I'm betting it uh, must have been around the writer strike.
3: Yeah, I'm not for sure, but yeah, Peter, I, I agree with you. The second, one, I think the second one is not a good movie, but it has really great moments. Yeah, like there are sequences in number two that I think are, are really stand out. I think three is where it starts circling the whirlpool, and four and five are just. Disasters. I can't even recommend like hate watching four and four and five at this point.
1: Yeah, I
2: like how the first one is kind of a ghost story too. Like it's the the, the fantasy mythology elements are there, but it's more a ghost story first and forward. And I feel like that element got lost in the later sequels.
4: Yeah, like the first movie. Yeah, like there's ghosts, and that's really the only real supernatural thing. And then all the sequels, they keep upping it, and it's like they're living in this completely fantasy world, like. You know, the first one, even though there are ghosts in it, it still feels like it's set in the real world. And then by the time you get to part two and part three and so on, there's just all this insane, goofy sci-fi shit that just does not fit in. (laughs) to what made the first film so cool. But, you know, so Pirates pirates won. Everyone rewatch that and then ignore the rest.
0: <laughs> it feels like those those story decisions were driven by what they could do with visual effects. And, like, they, they did such a good job with the ghosts and, and those sorts of Barbosa effects and stuff with the first one that they are like, okay, how can we top this? Because it has to be bigger and more in the sequels. And then they just sort of got sucked into this, you know, CG vortex of, like... <laughs> of their own creation, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. As a fan of Disneyland and theme parks, I'm not sure how many of you guys have remember or have been on the ride pirates of the Caribbean that this is based on, but it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Every time I go on this ride, I I, I like look at it and like, think about how they reverse engineered that first movie from this ride that like Walt Disney made, you know, decades ago. And it's like, it was never, there There was not even a story in that ride. That ride is like kind of a mood piece. Like you're going back in time and experiencing the days of of pirates. And it's funny how like the whole, you know, ghost thing is taken out of the first act of that ride. And I don't know if you've never experienced Pirates of the Caribbean, the ride look up a, you know, a POV on YouTube because it's it's just funny how many things were kind of like reverse engineered from that ride into a story and it shouldn't work. And somehow it is, you know, great. And I also want to uh, publicly shame all you guys because uh, n- nobody here has watched uh, uh prop culture, which has an episode of Pirates of the Caribbean. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's now on Disney plus we talked about it weeks is ago. The ep-
4: is, is the episode about the movie or the ride? Uh, About the movie. Oh, see, I'd be more interested in, like, but there is behind a... the scenes of the ride, because I, I yeah, went too. on the ride when I was a, a youngster the one time I went to Disney, and I loved the ride. This was before the movie even came out. Mm-hmm. I love that part where, like, you come out of, like, a, I don't know, like, a bridge or something, and, like, there's a whole sky that's, like, yeah. opening up, and it, like, blew me away as a kid. I was like, how is this? Because it's <laughs> indoors. I was like, how is this indoors? This makes no sense to me.
1: It, Did it you is. I heard
0: that in the Imagineering story, Peter?
1: They cover it a little in the Imagineering story, but they they do go to the ride in the prop culture because there's been rumors that there's some props from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies in the ride, and they it's been something that's been debated by fans for many years, and they finally... Go into the ride and uh, come to a conclusion. So there's your cliffhanger. If you want to see that, uh, I, I would say that that episode is probably not the best episode of prop culture, but it is on Disney Plus now. I really think it's probably one of the most bingeable, easy to watch, uh, fun. If if you are a film fanatic, you'll enjoy the series. So anyways, I I know I've already talked at length about that, but I uh but Brad and I talked about it before it was available. So N- now it's available to all. So
3: i'm gonna put a link in the show notes peter for a thing that you should read and everybody else should read from a, a really good theme park blog disney theme park blog called passport to dreams and the writer uh tends to like just dwell on like the actual art uh, and like aesthetics of theme park design and there's an article about the um the uh atmosphere tone and hidden story of parts of caribbean at disneyland that's one of the best pieces of theme park writing i've ever read and it's so and and it's and put, it puts in perspective just how different the film franchise is from the original intention of the ride in a way that is almost shocking. Yeah. So I'm going to put in the show notes. But and, wait, wait. Uh, do we he, know he, what
1: the original intention of the ride was? Because, like, I feel like there's been so many fan theories over the years. Like, the the ride begins with you, your boat, going through this bayou. And there's this guy on his porch playing a banjo. And there's been so many, like, fan theories of, like, oh, is this whole thing that guy telling you the story? of the pirates or is it he falling asleep and then this is a dream like is this like this link you're saying is this his interpretation or is this like based Uh, on actual
3: it's a combination of both but it is is by far uh the most scholarly look at the (laughs) park i've ever read it's very very good it's in the show notes you should definitely
1: check it out i'll take a look ben what have you been watching
3: so I've been on this uh,
0: Powell and Pressburger kick recently, uh, as I've as I've mentioned before on uh, Slash Film Daily, and uh, I I sort of roped my wife into watching one of these movies with me because I've enjoyed all of the ones that I've seen so far, and I was like all right, here's one that I think you'll like. It's this romance movie. I mean, not that she only likes romance movies, but I think we were both in the mood for something light. And I I think it it would have, you know, it it was something that I thought both of us would would react well to in that moment. And it's called, I Know Where I'm Going, exclamation point, from 1945. And I was like, right before I turned it on, I was like, watch this will be like the one powell and pressburger movie that just sucks and this movie does not suck but it is fine whereas all the other ones that i've seen have been uh you know varying levels of like masterworks (laughs) so um it was a little disappointing in that regard uh especially since it was like the first one that i like made this big deal to show my wife and it was like okay yeah this is a fine movie but the, the premise is really interesting it's about this this uh english woman who is you know this brassy dame who has an independent spirit and all that stuff, and she uh, she is supposed to be marrying this really rich guy, this older industrialist, on this island off the coast of Scotland. And she travels to go. He's he's already there, and she is traveling to get to her own wedding. And weather like the storm rolls in, basically bad weather, um, sort of strands her on this other island. Uh, and and she just sort of has to has to wait there until the weather, uh, I guess, improves enough where she can get out to her, you know, soon to be husband. And of course there is a handsome, uh, ship captain guy who is played by uh, Roger Livesey, who is, is, you know, a Powell and Pressburger regular and who's really, really great. Uh, and he is on this Island with her. And so her, you know, she slowly starts to fall for this guy instead of the guy that, that she's supposed to be marrying. So it's a pretty basic concept, but, um, I just, I thought the execution of it was not as, as great as I wanted it to be. I think, you know, because it's Powell and Pressburger, there's of course a, a base level of artistry that is there that you can see, but it just feels like one of their lesser works to me. Um, I don't know if anybody else here has seen this movie, but I'd never heard of it before watching it, but um, this is certainly not one of the ones, as far as I can tell, that is like held up in, you know, super high regard by like the critical community when, when talking about their work. Um but, yeah, so that's on Criterion Channel if you want to uh, check it out right now, although I, like I said, I would sort of recommend a lot of their other works above this one. Um, uh, I also watched The Last Picture Show. Which is from 1971. It is uh, co-written and directed by Peter Bogdanovich, and it stars uh, Timothy Bottoms as uh, who I don't think I've seen his work before, but he plays a, uh, a character named Sonny Crawford, who in 19 early 1950s Texas, it's like a, a coming-of-age story, and he is just this guy who like sort of hangs out in this like desolate small uh, North Texas town. And he hangs out with his buddy Dwayne, who's played by Jeff Bridges, a very young Jeff Bridges. And it's sort of bizarre to look at that and think about how like his voice is pretty much exactly the same now as it was all those years ago. And um, just watch him and how he's, changed or not changed as a performer um this movie was nominated for eight oscars including best picture and it actually won two oscars for uh, ben johnson for best supporting actor and uh Cloris leachman for best supporting actress they're both tremendous in the movie um but it's a really sort of slow like uh i don't know how to describe it it's it's sort of like a It's very frank about sexuality. It's basically like, like, sort of like an aimless movie is how I would describe it. I guess it's it's a coming of age film, which Peter, I know you're a big fan of like that subgenre, but it it sort of is just like about time and like what, you know, escaping the small town and like whether these kids are going to be trapped there or whether they're going to be, be able to move on with their life and and sort of, um, you know, come up and out on the other side of this thing. And it's like this really, you know, dusty, windy little movie. Um, and I know it's, it's a big deal. I would just never seen it before. But uh, anybody else here seen The Last Picture Show? Have any thoughts about it? I...
4: Bought this. I bought the Criterion Blu ray like a f- years ago, and it was on sale. And I have yet to watch it. It's on my shelf, unopened. One of these days I'll get around to watching it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. uh, Randy Quaid shows up in a a very small supporting role. So that was kind of a a fun surprise. And Timothy Bottoms reminded me a little bit of Paul Rudd. So I'll be interested, Chris, if you watch it. um, And if you get that same Paul Rudd uh, vibe from the the lead character there. So uh, that is also, I believe, on the Criterion channel, although... I watched it on Turner Classic Movies, so I'll have to double check that. Um, One thing I know for sure is on the Criterion channel is High and Low, which is uh, one of the best movies I've seen in a long, long time. This is a crime drama directed by Akira Kurosawa. I wrote about it for the quarantine stream column that we're doing on Slash Films, so I'm not going to talk about this for very long, but holy hell, this is a really, really great movie. It is uh, this kidnapping thriller where uh, Toshiro Mufune, who is one of Kurosawa's you know, longtime collaborators, who is in Yojimbo and Sanjuro and all these terrific samurai movies. This is an urban set movie where he plays this guy. The setup for this movie is so brilliant. He plays this uh, uh, corporate executive, like a, a shoemaker at this this factory uh, like who oversees uh, shoes. And um, what happens is his he thinks that his son is kidnapped, but it's actually uh, his son's best friend, who is the son of uh, his chauffeur, and he's right in the middle of trying to orchestrate this corporate takeover where he... Um, takes over the company and will be able to make the shoes the way that he wants to make them. And the movie does a really good job of putting you on his side early on. It's not like, oh, he's a, you know, an executive. Why do I give a shit about this guy? You're definitely like in his corner. And then this, this kidnapping happens. And so the, the kidnapper is demanding such a high sum of money for ransom that he will not be able to orchestrate this uh, corporate takeover that he's been working his entire life to achieve. So it puts him in this really, really interesting moral quandary. And that's the whole first half of the movie. The whole thing pretty much takes place, the whole first half anyway, in like one room, in their living room, this family's living room, as he uh, talks to the kidnapper and uh, Kurosawa just moves the camera like a motherfucking boss. Like this guy, is <laughs> like it's unreal. Watching the blocking, um, you know, I, I I think it would be uh, like Steven Spielberg is like the the modern master of blocking. Uh, there are so many video essays about that. But Kurosawa, man, I, I I have to believe that that Spielberg grew up being you know heavily influenced by that stuff. I've not looked into that to see if he was, but there are some shot selections in this that seem you know, like, like Spielberg ripped them straight out of high and low. So uh, the second half of this movie is like a police procedural that feels way ahead of its time. This came out in like the early sixties, 1963, I think. And um, it's just this really methodical look of how to catch the kidnapper. And uh, it reminded me a little bit of like uh, Bong Bong Joon-ho's memories of murder a little bit. Um, So man, it, it, this movie rules so hard it's called high and low it's on the criterion channel right now definitely check it out if you have not seen it has anybody else here seen this one
3: yeah this movie rules it is one we we talk about the best Sala movies you you have like 20 movies to consider for like any list and this is top five so
2: yeah like chris with last picture show this is one that i have the criterion blu-ray for but i haven't gotten around to watching it but now i i i actually left that on my apartment in New York, so I can't watch it on my Blu-ray, but I'll check it out on Criterion <laughs> Channel.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's really great. You'll love it, H.D. Uh, okay, so I also watched—this uh, was on Turner Classic Movies as well. It's a movie called Skatsi, um, which is a Hopi word that I believe means life out of balance. And this is a documentary—it's a silent documentary, so there's no dialogue. And it's, like, this experimental film from the early 80s. And the whole thing is basically just, like, time-lapse footage— of a bunch of different things like uh like nature and technology that's sort of like the the clash that this movie is documenting and uh it's really a fascinating watch um it, it like it opens with these shots of like monument valley and these similar areas where there's like no human life visible at all and the landscape looks almost totally alien and then later on in the film it it really gets into, like, city life and it's just lots of time lapses and lots of really gorgeously framed shots, Um, and just the the juxtaposition of the nature and the technology um, with this really haunting score by Philip Glass uh, in the background is, um, it, it just... Provides some really interesting results and sort of makes you think about, you know, the way that we're treating the planet and, and uh, all kinds of things like that. It's, it's like the, it's more of an experience than a movie, I think. Um, there are these super fast helicopter shots over a lot of different types of landscapes that reminded me of Soarin', the, the Disney theme park ride. Um, and there's this really, really amazingly framed shot with a Joshua tree in the foreground and then an atomic bomb explosion happening miles away in the background where the mushroom cloud takes on this similar shape to the joshua tree and the juxtaposition between nature and, and man-made horrors is just like never more clear in the movie than it is in that shot um the Philip glasses score like i mentioned it, it's this like electronic score it's a like a reminding me of like a, a precursor to drive um and that score of course was like monumentally influential on a ton of things from there so it, it sort of feels like the I don't know, like the urtext of, uh, of the electronic, like synth wave movement almost. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the score I think is like one of the most notable things about it. But if you're a fan of like time-lapse photography and just, uh, you know, experiences where you can just sort of like sit back and you don't have to like pay attention to a story but it's like a I think the wikipedia page calls it a tone poem that makes a lot of sense to me there so um yeah it's called koyana Skatsi. you may have trouble uh spelling it but you can find it in the <laughs> in the show notes of the show uh, this episode and then i finally uh, i finished my um, rewatch of breaking bad uh which uh, cements my opinion that, it, that it's like you know, in the top three shows I've ever seen in my life, it's so freaking good. Um, I, I watched this like uh, feature-length documentary that came with the Blu-ray box set called "No Half Measures: Creating the Final Season of Breaking Bad," and I was a little disappointed with it. it it's nice to see, you know, they they take you really methodically through every part of the whole production uh, and every episode in that final season. And it shows you, you know, the basically like fly on the wall kind of stuff um, as it's going. And then it's interspersed with uh, talking head interviews from everybody involved. But I I really wanted to see more fly on the wall stuff from the writer's room because famously for the final season of breaking bad, they did these flash forwards where uh, they wrote themselves into a corner where uh, Walter White has this giant machine gun and he's, you know, all uh, frazzled looking and bearded and, that's how the season sort of opens and you don't know what the hell is going on. And the writers didn't know what the hell was going on either. And they just had to like figure it out by the time they got to the end of the, of the show. And I really was hoping for like a more in-depth look at their struggles and, and uh, you know, efforts to uh, essentially like put enough train track down when the train is already running. Um, But you, it really is more of a breezy sort of, feature-length featurette almost instead of, uh, mm-hmm. like, an in-depth documentary. But uh, it's still an enjoyable watch for anybody who's, you know, watched the entirety of Breaking Bad. So um, Breaking Bad is streaming on Netflix right now, but the, I I think this documentary was only available in the uh, Blu-ray box set.
1: Yeah, despite you saying that it's not great, I was looking to see if it was available streaming anywhere, and it looks like it is not. You are correct. It's only on that box set. So... I guess I won't watch it. So there. HG, or what you will... could
2: buy the box set, Peter.
1: I don't need more physical possessions owning me, H.T. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't that box set come in like a gigantic barrel or something?
0: Yeah, yeah, it does. It has a lot of yeah. cool uh, bonus it's cool things. Um, it actually has a, uh, a Los Poyos Hermanos apron that I use pretty <laughs> regularly in my kitchen.
1: H.T., <laughs> yeah. what have you been watching?
2: I watched Den of Thieves, which just which just hit Netflix recently. I'm and... very,
4: very excited about this, i <laughs> H- I'm very excited you watch Den of Thieves.
2: I
1: was, wait, wait, like, wait, wait. I will say Before so. H.D. says what she's gonna say, why are you excited, Chris? Because
4: I love Den of Thieves. Den of Thieves is is dirt bag heat, basically. It's a remake of heat made by dirtbags. And Gerard Butler is just constantly drunk in the movie and chugging Pepto Bismol. And it's just a mess and I love it. It's just a beautiful mess.
2: Okay. Now, so... now don't say
4: anything negative, H T <laughs>
2: Well, I have to say that I kind of reluctantly came into watching Den of Thieves because I have a friend who for some reason loves this movie as as much as you. And um I you know, I I had a trade off in that, like I was trying to force him to watch Fleabag, and thus he said if he will watch Fleabag if he if I watch Den of Thieves. So I watched Den of Thieves.
1: I don't believe this. I, I figured after you were out of your New York apartment, you would stop blaming what you're watching on your roommate. But it's still happening, HD. What What is going on
2: here? I live up to my promises. I, I can't say I like Den of Thieves. Um, uh, I can't say that. I mean, I do appreciate uh, Gerard Butler's second fav- phase of his career as the B-movie king. And I liked his performance in this. I also liked uh, Ice Cube's son, um, O'Shea Jackson Jr. I thought he was really good in this. And I thought I was I was kind of confused because like his character was like the supporting role, and he's so charismatic and fun to watch. And I was wondering why he was just kind of the smaller supporting role. But there's a fun twist in this movie that um, explains why he's in this role at the beginning. And I enjoyed the twists. I endured, enjoyed the dirtbag heists of it, I guess. Um, or, you know, I, it's fine. I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs>
3: it's, have
4: you seen Heat, HD?
2: No, I actually haven't watched Heat. Ah, oh uh, see, God. I feel
4: like if you had watched Heat first and then watched this, you would appreciate this even more because it really is. It's like not even trying to pretend it's anything else, but like a, a cheap remake of heat with a little of the uh, the usual suspects thrown in for some reason that makes no sense. And I feel like maybe that way, not that, you know, not that your opinion is invalidated because you haven't seen heat. <laughs> I'm just saying maybe you would have, you
1: would have uh, cherished <laughs> the gem that is Den of Thieves a bit more. Chris, wait until you hear her top five Pixar movies and see if you agree with that. Is Heat number one? Is
2: Heat
1: number more? one. I'm you sorry. It's really really funny,
2: saying? Um, Chris. If I watched Heat and I was like, that was just a rip-off of Den of Thieves. Yes. Yeah, how I
1: dare they? <laughs> I, I, oh, I, dare, I do wonder plan. if you saw Heat now, would you be less entertained by Heat because you saw the rip off? Like
2: no. Like oh, I feel...
3: Heat's been ripped off by so like Heat's entered the fabric yeah. of American filmmaking in such a deep DNA level that I'm very curious to see how each she reacts to Heat like right and, now. And like
0: even plot-wise, you can put the entire plot of Heat aside and the performances in that movie are so I mean not always great but always interesting that that uh, anybody watching Heat Fresh for the first time will have a lot to pay attention to.
2: <laughs> Watch after like a couple of weeks I'll be like, "Wow." Heat just ripped off Den of Thieves. How dare yeah, but, like. but Heat
4: doesn't have a scene where Al Pacino picks a donut off of a crime scene and eats it, as Gerard Butler does in Den of Thieves. So which is the better movie? I don't know.
2: Yep, that's the question. All right. Well, I watched Den of Thieves. You know what? At, at some point, I'm going to watch Heat. I, I kind of am curious now to compare the two. Uh, I did it backwards, but I'm gonna I'm gonna watch Heat finally, which is not streaming anywhere. It's only for rent. Um, but oh, bummer. Uh, this is the movie that got me around to finally watching Heat. Thank you, Den of Thieves. <laughs> um, another movie that I watched uh, that I uh, really enjoyed uh, is My Man Godfrey. So every now and then, I feel kind of the urge to watch a screwball comedy, and um, I decided to check out My Man, Godfrey, which I'd, have, I'd never seen before. It's directed by Gregory LaCava, and it stars William Powell and Carol Lombard. I actually didn't know anything about this movie other than the fact that it star- stars Carol Lombard and William Powell, Mr. Thin Man himself, and um, that it's a screwball comedy. But I was really pleasantly surprised by this movie. Um, it's a 1936 uh, film, and it is a social satire that actually grapples with the effects of the Depression in a way that I rarely saw in a lot of classic um, Hollywood films. I guess you see it a lot more in 1930s films, um, and it's really funny. It's really interesting to see like how Hollywood sometimes touches on it and sometimes it doesn't, but it follows a... Um, uh, debut, like an heiress type of uh, a woman played by Carol Lombard, who is on a scavenger hunt with the other rich people of um, uh, of New York City, and their her goal is to find a forgotten man, which uh, was a common word used in sort of Depression era America to refer to people who were at the bottom rung uh, and like greatly affected by the Depression. Uh, I kind of I had heard this term before. I I, had, I think I'd seen Gold Diggers of nineteen thirty three or something, and there's a whole song uh, called like for, Remember My Forgotten Man, and I kind of assumed that it mostly dealt with veterans coming back from World War One who were suffering to or struggling to uh, reintegrate into society, and were kind of economically and financially just like on the lower rung of society. Uh, with the, the addition of the Great Depression, really just exacerbating that. But I think that it kind of becomes an umbrella term for anyone who is just kind of really financially on the, on the, like, on the rocks, like uh, at rock bottom. And um, she finds a forgotten man played by William Powell, who is a homeless man living on a city dump in Hooversville. Uh, on the East River, and uh, he is at first incredibly insulted by this whole scavenger hunt um, and, sh- and uh, refuses to return. But she charms him, and he decides to come and to uh, the center of the scavenger hunt, insults everyone there, and uh, she decides to hire him as uh, the family's butler because they are a very eccentric family that goes through a whole string of butlers um, day after day. And, um, he does and he sticks it out and it's actually yeah, like I said it's like a social satire that kind of makes fun and pokes fun at like these uh an uber wealthy while being a sort of screwball rom-com uh, mostly it's Carol Lombard just like fawning over William Powell and how hot he is and I have to say I wonder if it's also quarantine effects but I was like wow William Powell is like really good looking in this movie and um especially when he's uh, living homeless and he has all like this, be- this beard and everything when he shaves it off I was a little bit sad i was like oh man he like looks really good um, <laughs> but i i really I, I feel like this might actually be like one of my like one of my favorite screwball comedies i've seen A lot of screwball comedies, they set up a really fun premise and it's really strong based off of the chemistry of Leeds and Carol Lombard and uh, William Powell do have great chemistry. They were actually married for a couple years before um, uh, My Man Godfrey was shot. Uh, And I really I adored their chemistry. But like in a lot of screwball comedies, the second half kind of falls apart and it kind of gets wrapped up really neatly. And uh, there's actually some fun twists in My Man Godfrey that keeps the narrative going Strong and uh, kind of has some more of that depth to it that I, you know, you don't always get in a screwball film. It's mostly just shenanigans and hijinks. And while there's a fair few amount of them there um, in this movie, I I um, really enjoyed how it just kind of kept uh, a str- like a pretty strong narrative going and uh, and uh, kept me like kind of on our, on my toes. And um, I yeah I really enjoyed My Man Godfrey. I watched it on Amazon Prime. Um, I will say that the ending does kind of wrap things up a little neatly, as per a lot of movies shot in the 1930s. But um, I really enjoyed this film. William Powell and Carol Lombard are just so fun and so delightful to watch. Carol Lombard is a little bit on the uh, really eccentric side, but I, she's just she's just so funny and she's so entertaining in this film. And yeah, I. William Powell man I just like I did not expect to like come out liking him this much in this movie and um I've only seen a little bit of the first Thin Man movie but now I kind of want to go and um check out more of them like he's really great at that banter as you see like in the Thin Man movies it's all about him and um oh gosh who is it in uh in Thin Man is it uh Myrna Loy, I can't yes. remember. Yeah, yes, great. Myrna Loy, and he has like great chemistry and dynamic with them, and they have that good married married couple banter and and dynamic, and he is just the he really holds his own and it's just he's so fun to watch. I I really like My Man Godfrey, and um, that's streaming now on Amazon Prime. Um, and the last thing I'm watching is uh, uh, I talked last week about. Uh, re-watching community and um, Ben and I discussed whether I would go on past the first three seasons uh, which were showrun by Dan Harmon um, and uh, watch the fourth season which has switched out Dan Harmon or fired Dan Harmon actually and uh, replaced him with David Guar- Guaracio and Moses Port as the show- showrunners for that season and um, I reached that dreaded fourth season uh, and it, yeah it's not good uh, it's I can't. I will say, like, I've been getting through it, fine. Like, it's not t- unwatchable per se, but it just so is so obviously a shadow and a pale imitation of what Dan Harmon was doing with the first three seasons. Mm-hmm. Like, the um, the showrunner, the new showrunners just kind of saw that those first three seasons, and they tried to, their best to imitate it, or maybe not even tried their best. It's really lazy in a lot of ways. Um, it's very very clear that the jokes aren't as sharp. Or as um, as a uh, rapid fire as they used to be, and uh, you can see even like especially Chevy Chase is like checked out like he barely appears in this season and it's kind of funny to see but. <laughs> there are some fun moments and it's mostly because the cast are still really invested and they're still just like really fun to watch. But um, yeah, the writing is really just drops off and uh, it's mostly forgettable stuff. As I was watching it, I was like, wow, I don't remember any of what happened in these episodes. And um, after I watched it, I forget it again, but I think I will continue um, on with my rewatch of community because I do remember really liking season five even when it loses a lot of the cast and um season i'm almost like done with season four and yeah it's just it's just really aggressively mediocre too bad like it's not unwatchable but it just um it's it's clear like that dan Harmon and his his uh voice is is not there anymore
0: he was brought back for season five right that's when he came back
2: yes he was brought back for season five and season six so there are like there is a return to form for season five and six, not as, as good as the seasons one through three, but um, I do remember actually like there are a lot of episodes in season five that I'm like, wow, I, I thought that was earlier, but um, they, uh, they are in season five and like, there are some good, good moments in season five. So I'm looking forward to getting to that and getting past this hump of season four.
1: <laughs> well, tune in next week as we hear HT realize how much of Michael Mann's heat was stolen by Christopher Nolan. <laughs> okay, let's move on to what we've been eating. I this week, uh, Knott's Berry Farm is this theme park near Disneyland. Uh, it is a classic theme park. It actually started as a berry farm, <laughs> and it, 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 uh, at the berry farm, they they sold berries at the side on the side of the road. Mrs. Knott opened up a chicken. Uh, she opened up their den to sell her famous like fried chicken dinners. That became so popular that there was a line down the street, hours long, that Mr. Knott's built this ghost town to entertain people. So it was like an old western ghost town to entertain people. And that's what became Knott's Berry Farm, uh, the famous theme park that is in Buena Park, California. And Knott's Berry Farm, like Disneyland, Disney World, Universal Studios, is closed down because of the pandemic. But this week they opened up the Chicken Dinner Restaurants. Not for guests because, you know, you still can't eat indoors anywhere in California, as far as I know. Uh, and uh, But they are taking to-go orders. So you can go there and uh, place a to-go order or you can actually go on their website and pre-order a meal online. And then you just drive up. Someone opens your back door, puts it in your, in your car, and you get to drive away. Uh, that's what I did. And we recorded a video about it for Ordinary Adventures. Uh Mrs. Knott's fried chicken is considered to be uh really great. Uh Kitra had never tried it before. I had I've had it before. Uh but we also got uh, a whole big meal which included a boysenberry pie. Uh Knott's Berry Farm is uh famous for their boysenberries. And uh that was great, and there's their uh, their biscuits are just like amazing. And uh, you dip them in this, like, boysenberry jam. It's just so good. But uh, if you want to see us eating some food and see, see you know, what, what a theme park is now turned into. Uh, you know, they're now <laughs> uh, serving meals on the side of the road. Uh, it, it's interesting to see us, like, picking up, like, like, how the whole process goes because we recorded it on the vlog. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Jacob, what have you been eating?
3: I am not seeking out delicious, famous fried chicken, because during a pandemic, you revert to who you are when you were uh, 21, which means I'm reverting to being a total trash person. Uh, After literally not touching them for years, I've been eating Doritos and drinking Mike's Hard Lemonade like a filthy, foul, fucking piece of trash. Uh, (laughs) Doritos are the worst chips in the world. I'm eating them, the cooler... Cool ranch.
4: Whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, wait. Wait, What's you're so picking cool ranch? Doritos?
3: I don't eat them, but I don't
4: think of them as that bad. Which, what kind are you eating?
3: I mean, the cool ranch, the only kind that matters. Oh, never mind.
4: Then, yes, those are yeah. garbage. Forget I was walking it. by,
3: <laughs> I was doing my supply runs. I saw a bag of Doritos and said in the corner of the bag, now with more flavor. And I, I said, you know what? I'm sitting inside all day because of a pandemic. I gotta try the more flavor, <laughs> Cool Ranch Doritos.
1: What does and that I mean? Did. More like seasoning on top of it?
3: Oh uh, yeah, I I, I I I choked on a few chips. Not because that was they're they're like super sharp and too crunchy and tear up your throat when they go down, but because there's too much powder on them now. But you know what? They're it, it, still Doritos. They're still a reminder of who I was, you know, over a decade ago. And, and Wonder Woman's on the bag to celebrate the movie that's yeah, not coming out anymore. Uh, so. <laughs> You know, I can remind myself things are normal. Like, I'm, I'm 21, damn it. I'm, I'm not th- in my 30s. I'm 21, and the Wonder Woman's coming out, and these Doritos are perfectly fine and normal. And also, I, I've been drinking so much hard liquor that I said, damn it, I need something softer. I want to be able to get lightly buzzed instead of becoming an alcoholic every single night. So rather than go spend $70 on two large bottles of vodka, I bought some Mike's Hard Lemonade because I don't like beer. Uh, <laughs> so I, so uh-huh. as I said,
2: I haven't had Mike's Hard Lemonade since college, since before I was 21, because that's what you think alcohol is.
3: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, because, you know, look, look HT, we were going through, my wife and I are going through more vodka tequila per week than is sustainable. So uh, she can enjoy beer. I, I think beer is gross because I'm still a whiny little baby who who doesn't who never developed that taste. So as a whiny little baby, I had to go to Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hey, so, I, that...
1: I, I agree with you, Jacob. <laughs> beer is gross. I, I am also a wuss, a wuss Squad, uh, you know, Unite. I, what I drink what I would recommend to you, Jacob. I'm not sure if you've tried this, but uh, my local grocery store has this cider from a company called Ace Hard Cider, and it's uh, pineapple cider. It is amazing.
3: I'm picky about cider. I, there's actually a um, cider brand called Scrumpy. Um, that is absolutely (laughs) delicious. It is a, one of the best things I've ever had in my life. Uh, but it's very seasonal. It only tends to come in down to Texas, you know, during certain months of the year and last time I was in my liquor store for for a supply run, they were out of scrumpy. So I'm reverting to the next best thing, which is Mike's hard lemonade. Hmm.
1: Okay. I, I, since Jacob brought up the Doritos thing, I want to go around the table and ask you guys what your favorite chips are. I will start things off. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to, I'm going to give you two options here. I love the Tostitos uh, with the hint of lime, and I love dipping that in like some kind of like like pineapple peach salsa. I think that's great, and I love uh, Kettle Brand jalapeno chips. So, uh, HT, what is your favorite chips?
2: Mm, I'm pretty boring because I don't I don't try out a lot of chips, but I do like Fritos, I like a good Fritos chip. Oh, I will go a little bit. Um, exotic on you guys and talk about (laughs) shrimp chips which are very common uh, commonly eaten amongst like asians and uh, (laughs) i love those like that's one that chip that i would always eat uh at the beach for some reason like my family would just bring all these bags of shrimp chips at the beach so i associate shrimp chips with sand but they're still delicious
1: see we tried those That's on our un- Japanese no. – yeah, the, uh, we went and got Sand some – Sand and chips. <laughs> we, we went and got some Japanese candy and snacks, and we did a video eating those things. I do not like shrimp, so I just sniffed them, and I just was almost going to barf just from, like, the smell. But Kitra tried them, and she, she likes shrimp, and she, like, almost threw up, so.
2: They're good. I don't know what to tell you. Don't
3: you don't know. have an Asian palate, Peter. Come on. Yeah.
1: Ben, favorite
3: chips. Uh, I like salt and pepper
0: chips, so I think, I think it's Lay's has like a kettle cooked sea salt and crush, uh, crushed black pepper chip. Um, there's also one, I don't remember the name. I don't, I don't, I, I feel <laughs> like Brad would be disappointed in me because I don't know the name brands of these, uh, <laughs> of these chips, but there's also like a waffle f- shape, a waffle type of chip that is just like salt and pepper. Um, so huh. yeah, I'm simple that way.
1: Okay, then, Chris, what is your favorite chips? You know, I, I don't really
4: eat chips because I'm like constantly trying to lose weight. But when I did eat chips, I I liked the the nacho Doritos. Not the the cool ranch ones are terrible, but I liked the nacho cheese ones. And I also like uh, salt and vinegar chips, which are like a very acquired taste. But I thought I think they're pretty good actually. But I usually I, I don't think I've had chips in a very long time.
1: I feel like I can eat some salt and vinegar, and then some of them are too vinegary for me. Like, it it depends on the brand. But, uh, okay. I think that does it for today's Hey, Peter,
3: you're you're implying that Cool Ranch are actually my favorite chips and not a
1: coping mechanism. Oh, I, I thought they were. It's Not at top... all.
3: They're they're trash. They're trash for trash people. <laughs> but <laughs> really I thought like you said, I thought you
1: said you were a trash person.
3: Oh, I am. But during normal times, when things back to normal, I'm going back to eating uh, cheddar sun chips, which are my uh, go to chip of choice.
1: I don't think I've ever had the cheddar version of sun chips. i just had like the the normal version, which is what like a corn kind of um. Yeah,
3: sort of like a yeah, whatever basic corn chip is. But yeah, I think the uh, cheddar sun chips are exceptional.
1: How do those compare to Doritos?
3: they're like, oh, all right, look, a, a, a Dorito lives in a hole by the highway and it preys upon motorists and like takes their hair for wigs and like plays dress up and, with a mirror and it stole a cheddar sonship has a two car garage and a family. It has a job. It's very nice. It brings a pot roast uh, to your potluck.
0: Uh, I'm so glad you asked that final question, Peter, because now I will always think of that whenever I think of <laughs> Burritos
1: and such. <laughs> okay, you can find more of all of our work at slash.com You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashLom.com. And rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you on Monday. That was hey, a good hey, episode, Peter. guys. Peter. I, I think that was Peter. good. People will enjoy the chip Peter. thing. Peter. Yeah.
3: Peter. Uh, I, I've opened up the gargantuan Book of Insult, Offense, and Infruntery. Is there a tortes, section on chips? Repost, cost equips implied, put down by Louis A. Safian. No section on chips as far as I know, but there is a section called Dumbbells on page 55. Dumbbells. Mm. <clears throat> Peter, the only fast way you'll ever broaden your mind is to put it under a train.
1: Wow. Bru- uh, so you're saying y- I should squash my head?
3: Peter, the only fast way you'll ever broaden your mind is to put it under a train.
1: By the way, when I was a kid, I lived next to a, rail, a railroad track, and I would go and put like pennies on there, and it, like the the train would come by like a few times a day, and it would like squash the pennies, so it'd be like these. Peter, like, that's dangerous. That I know. Derailed the train. Are yeah. You're my, to kill
4: everyone.
1: Yeah. And then Are my dad would, like yell at me. Yeah, he fa- found out about it, and he like yelled at me. And my house was like right next to the train, so theoretically, I could have put it there, and it could have derailed and then like ran into our house. So.
2: Oh my God.
3: Yeah, Peter. The only fast way you overbroaden your <laughs> mind is to put it under a train.
4: <laughs>
3: ben, he's nobody's fool. Poor guy. He couldn't get anyone to adopt him. <laughs> Sad.
2: Very Chris. Chris.
3: Chris. He speaks straight from the shoulder. Too bad his remarks don't start higher up.
1: Ah. Uh. Wait, wait, wait! What? I'm, I'm, no, I'm a little... Peter. No. Don't We're say not. anything.
3: Uh, Chris speaks straight it. from the shoulder. Oh, sorry, Chris speaks straight from the shoulder. Too bad his remarks don't start higher up.
1: Oh, okay. Because it's yeah, I see. I got it. Uh,
3: HT. She has a heart of gold and a brain of pure meringue.
2: Sounds delicious.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Brad is in here, but the programs he watches on TV are vidiot's
1: delight.
4: That's pretty good.